they will love you as you are, for they will carry you as you are, and all these worries can pass you by. After a brief hiatus this week on the Queer Calling Podcast, I had the honor of talking to Reverend Pat Baumgartner, who has been a senior pastor at Metropolitan Community Church of New York City since 1986 and is a regular attendee of New York City's Dyke March. Reverend Baumgartner has been officiating queer marriages and sacred ceremonies for over 40 years, way before it was federally legalized. Reverend Baumgartner recalled washing the feet of folks living with HIV and AIDS in the 80s and 90s in a time when doctors and dentists and health professionals refused to treat them. We talk about losing thousands of congregants to AIDS and how that shaped and fueled Pat's theology and sense of justice. Reverend Baumgartner was raised in the Catholic tradition in the farmlands of Indiana and maintains Catholic rituals within their private faith practice. Reverend Baumgartner is our elder and a huge reason someone like me has the space and permission to host this podcast at all. So this episode was an honor to create and I am so grateful. Okay, thank you so much for carving out some time to do this. Um, My name's Keisha and I'm going to be hosting this episode. If you could do me a favor and introduce yourself to our audience, that would be amazing. Um, My name is Pat Baumgartner. I'm the pastor of Metropolitan Community Church of New York and the executive director of the Global Justice Institute. And I'm an elder or bishop in our denomination. Do you want to be referred to as bishop or reverend or would you prefer Pat? I don't care. (laughs) Okay. Um, Okay. And... um, Do you have preferred pronouns that you'd like to share with us today? No, I I generally don't use pronouns much, um, but whatever you do is fine. Excellent. Okay. Um, So I'm so honored that you decided to say yes to this podcast because I think of you as somebody that has been doing this work before it was cool to do this work. Um, And I'm really interested in, from your perspective, how you identify, uh, you know, both in your faith tradition, but also in your queerness as well. Um, Well, in terms of queerness, I identify as a, what I call a gender queer, Um, meaning, I guess, for me that, um, I mean, obviously I was, I think it's obvious, although apparently people (laughs) on the street don't think it's obvious. Um, I was uh, born into a female body, but I, you know, I've, over my years in ministry and just life, I've come to believe that there are there are many different options around that particular incarnation and, Mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, saying you're female or a woman or a lesbian just uh, doesn't quite get at who I think I am. It it may for some people. uh, Totally. uh, But for me, it's a, it's a different reality. Um, you know, I, I hate to say it this way, but it's, uh, I'm, I'm not saying I'm not female. I'm just saying I'm a different kind of female and gender queer better captures that for me. In terms of my um, spiritual life, I, uh, I profess to be trying to be a follower of Jesus Mm-hmm. And um, someone who um, who cherishes the gospel and who tries to implement that in a daily capacity. Did you grow up in a faith tradition? Well, yes and no. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like many people, 
there was a faith tradition, but right, right. I would say I was like really schooled in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that my Anne Ethel, it's a long story, but for from the ages of five till 10, my family, my brother, myself, my mother, my father lived with our aunt on a large farm that was hers. Mm-hmm. And, um, and where was I this farm? This was in the northeast corner of Indiana. Okay. Um, so most New Yorkers are mid are transplanted mis- Midwesterners, right? I mean, that's just true, I think. At least those who end up in the church. But anyway, um, <laughs> um, I think from my aunt, I... Um, I kind of, she kind of cultivated in me, I'll put it that way, a love of the church, a love of the mass, a sense of the beauty of the mass, Mm -hmm. uh, that it was a drama, um, you know, that salvation was being enacted in this arena, you know, and that we were participating in that. Um, So... I wouldn't really say I was like raised in it, but I came right. to deep appreciation of it. And um, by the time I was a senior in high school, I had pretty much decided that I wanted to be a priest. But when I made that known, um, the response was, um, well, no, that's not possible. And you should be a Benedictine nun because you're so shy. You could take a vow of silence. Well, I knew I wasn't going to, that wasn't my call to take the <laughs> silence. Um, so I just had to keep working at it, you know, and I went to college and majored, majored in some other things and was part of a, a home mass community. So I don't know if you're familiar with this, but at one point in the Catholic church, it was very common in the United States for like small groups of people to gather in homes and worship together. And it would mm-hmm. be a way, it was a way to have a more, um, a more intimate, more engaging worship experience. And um, a couple, a man and a woman who were a couple in that group um, called me one night and asked me to come over. So I did. And they said, we want to pray with you. And I said, okay. So we were praying. And then they said to me, um, we believe in your calling, and so we want to pay for wow. your seminary education. Um, so I immediately did the impetuous thing and dropped out of college only to learn that I needed to complete college to get into seminary. So I had to do my last year of college and my first year of seminary at the same time. I started at a place called the Crozier House of Studies, which belonged to the Order of the Holy Cross in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And then as was happening across the United States to many theologates, it was closing because they didn't have enough men Mm -hmm. staying it. And they were sending their guys to Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. So my Old Testament professor, God bless Martin Shane Weather, called them up and said, "Um, we have one woman, will you take her? And they said, well, there's nothing in canon law to prevent the education of women. So, yes, we'll take her. So you were the only person that identified as a woman at that time in that seminary? Yes. Um, And then when I went to CPU, I was the only woman for the first year in my, uh, so that was actually my second year of seminary. So then in my third year of seminary, nuns started coming to the school and in my last by the time I got to my last year they had hired a woman as the dean of the school so CTU was part of a cluster of schools in Chicago there are 11 schools that make Mm -hmm. up yeah yeah so uh so a lot of change happened pretty quickly um but there was no way for me to be ordained so then most of the guys in my class, they were all belong to various orders. So in the order, in a religious order, you become a deacon 
as a step toward becoming a priest ordination. And I couldn't do that. So then they said, well, um, get some kind of placement. And if we certify it, we'll count that as your diaconate and then you can graduate and you know do whatever you do. So, so I got a placement in a home for court referred teenage boys on Long Island, which is why I came to New York. Um, mm. Do you still, so this is, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so this so this is all so correct me if I'm wrong um you were you were raised Catholic and do you still identify as Catholic or or well, has that been slowed I I do identify as Catholic in terms of my spirituality mm -hmm. I'm also uh part of metropolitan community churches and MCC to me, um, what best describes us is that Isaiah thing, a house of prayer for all God's people. So, for example, at MCC New York, you know, we have people from Catholic backgrounds, people from Episcopal backgrounds, people from various uh, Protestant sects, a couple of people who call themselves Buddhists, a couple of people from Jewish backgrounds. You know what I mean? It's a kind of like... Um, I say my job as the pastor is not to convert you or tell you what your path is, but to walk with you on whatever mm. that path is. And so, you know, we try to practice being, being that house of prayer for all people. So that's my spirituality. But there are other people here who have a very different take on things, you know. So you, you talk about, you know, knowing in high school, um, about this path that you want to pursue and sort of hearing and know did was it around that time or when did it also happen in your body or was known by you that um you know you might be queer or gay or a very late bloomer very okay late. um I was it wasn't until I got to New York that it really clar clarified for me. And um, how did that impact your sort of plan to be in seminary and your call? And Well, I was out of seminary by that point. Mm -hmm. um, and I had come to MCC um, not knowing that I was queer. Mm -hmm. um, just coming because a woman named Shelley Hamilton told me, come, it's for everybody. You know, it doesn't matter. Um, and I actually came out in my first sermon at MCC. Um, so, you know, I, I was 27 before I actually thought much about it, to tell you the truth. Um, and had and other types of relationships, you know. And how... Do you remember, do you remember if, um, sort of your, your decided or your chosen path, did you feel fear when you were coming out? Did you feel held? Did you, how did well, you sort because of. Because I was, uh, both the age I was mm -hmm. and uh, because I had gone through seminary. So I uh, knew what everybody who's gone to seminary since 1950 actually knows, um, that the Bible does not condemn queer people. You know, that, mm. that's not there. Um, you can make up all sorts of things you want to make up about that or, you know, screw things around to interpret it that way. But I was pretty sure um, that that just wasn't there. So I didn't have um, a lot of trauma in that way. My uh, parents, um, whom I was not close to at all, but when they found out, said they disowned me. Um, and basically what I said to them is, that's a decision you'll have to live with. Well, they couldn't live with it. So <laughs> that was the end of that. Um, 
you know, so I didn't have great trauma. And I have one mm. brother, and he's also gay. Mm. Uh, and he's here in New York and part of the church also. So, um, so my parents are batting a perfect average there, I guess. You know. <laughs> so I, I just want to go back to this point. I, I also went to seminary and I, I loved um, working with classmates to queer theology. I grew up in a very conservative country. So this was part of my journey, but I, I don't think people can hear it enough. So when you said, you know, the Bible does not say what we think it says about queer people. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Both about, you know, your understanding back then about it and your understanding now. And, and then my part two of that question is, why do you think it is wielded in the way that it is now against queer people? Right. Well, you know, obviously you go to seminary and they many classes zero in on this Hebrew word, this Greek word. Well, you begin to find out what these words and phrases actually say and realize that, well, how did you get this other wonky interpretation out of this, you know? And then you start reading around and finding research that others have done that really indicates Oh, yeah, it doesn't say that. So, you know, like, you know, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, which every person, whether they're Christian or Jewish or not, seems to be able to throw out mm -hmm. and supposedly tell. But, you know, it, it takes very little study um, to get to that, you know, Genesis 19.5, send them out to us that we may yada them know them you know or what that word means adam yada eve and she bore cain okay 343 times 10 have a in the old testament 10 have a sexual connotation mm -hmm. but the rest don't so, so what's you know what's going on here and you know it's it's not hard to figure out that what they intended to do there was to um sodomize rape these people it was a form of subjugation i mean we don't have trouble telling that story in other contexts you know about what was done to people what is still done to people to subjugate them uh you know and then we have no trouble looking for parallels with other stories so you know the parallel of the benjaminite man who takes in the guy who went after his concubine and same thing happens, town people come out, they send her out, they rape her through the night, they cut her up into pieces, mail her to the tribes of Israel. On Which the, is 19. Yeah, on the basis of that story, no one says heterosexuality is a sin. God condemns <laughs> heterosexuality. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it, just, it doesn't make any sense. And mm -hmm. so, I mean, you know, you can kind of go through all of that. The problem, of course, is that people aren't really using these stories for spiritual purposes. They're using them for political purposes, right? And to be able to base structures and systems and the control of people's lives on interpretations that are faulty. So, you at know, best. <laughs> at best, yeah, if not, um, you know, if not criminal, you know. Mm -hmm in terms of their intent, but then you end up having to fight, you know, political battles and um, Absolutely. structural battles. And um, how do you deal with the vocabulary around abomination? Because that's a word that gets sort of thrown around a lot. Um, and, and, and you, and is used a little bit, not a little bit is used to sort of, drive in fear towards baby gays who sort of know that they're queer, but they're in the church and they're deeply afraid that they're going to burn in hell for all eternity. How, how do you sort of talk about that and that terminology in the Bible? 
Well, I think, you know, you have to, um, that whole Levitical code thing. Yeah. And so, so we're, again, I tell people, you know, never proof text, but read a little bit before and a little bit after. So read <laughs> Leviticus 17 through 20. The message you're going to come pretty close to getting, I think, is um, don't do what they did in the land I'm leading you out of and don't do what they're doing in the land I'm leading you into. But be my people, you know, right. things as a way of identifying yourself as my people. Um, so I think that, first of all, is a very important thing. Then I think um, the whole thing about abomination and, and that word and what is an abomination, you know, um, mixing fabrics can be an abomination. Um, mm. You know, eating animals with hooves can be an abomination. Um, yet plenty of eating shellfish can be a, an abomination, but plenty of people eat shellfish. Um, not me, but <laughs> many people. I mean, I think you have to ask yourselves, okay, what makes the abomination? Is it is it the act or is it who it identifies us with? You know what I'm saying? Right. And... Um, it, I think it's not an easy um, task to kind of debunk these things, but I think it can be done. And uh, you, you have to be willing to look for what is a uh, more realistic, truer understanding of what people were trying to talk about there. Hmm. The other thing about that, for me is I'm pretty much convinced that none of the people that, that put these texts, these pieces of text together were at that point in history. So thousands and thousands of years ago, right? Um, thinking of themselves the way you and I think of ourselves. I mean, mm -hmm. I think that an evolutionary process. And so I think probably plenty of people had sex, men with men, women with women, you know. In fact, we know that they did in the temple cults. We can find the evidence of it. Um, but did they think of that as identifying who they were? Or did they think of that as connecting themselves to the worship of another god or being mm. part of different people? And so one of the things I say to people is, if when you're in bed with your partner, you're not trying to worship a foreign god, don't worry about it. <laughs> if you're, you know, you have not committed an abomination. The abomination <laughs> is when you go that extra step and think, oh yeah, <laughs> makes me worship so and so. You know, um, I, you know, I, I have so many questions. I think. I'll, I'll go back and I'll retrace my steps and then we'll move forward with my questions because I feel myself brimming with questions for you. So I'm going to go one at a time. Um, so you, you talk about, um, you know, coming out at around 26, 27, you're done with seminary. You're already in or adjacent to New York. You've already found MCC. How do you um, think about and remember was there a connection between you coming into your queerness and your work in faith spaces that influenced your activism? Because your work, um, to me, at least, uh, you know, it, it feels like you have sort of been fighting this battle of um, fighting homophobia and transphobia in faith spaces for a long time. And I, I'm curious about what fueled that. Um, was it your faith? Was it your identity? Was it both? Um, yeah. Well, I think it was both is the simple answer. I think, you know, my understanding of the gospel is that it is a radical social manifesto, that that's what it is. It's, it's given Indeed. to us as the format as a format 
for social change, you know? So if you're going to engage that, then you have to be open to the ways that that challenges your situation where you find yourself. So, you know, in global, in the Global Justice Institute, for example, we're very clear about the fact that we are not missionaries and we do not go in any place, number one, until we're invited, but number two, with an idea of what should happen there. We look to connect with spiritual activists on the ground, whether that's Pakistan or Kenya or, uh, you know, Argentina, wherever it is, and, and listen for how they understand the gospel and its manifesto for their situation, what they think could bring the kind of social change thereafter. And then we're trying to find ways that we can partner with them around that to bring that social change. Um, so I think, you know, what fuels me, if that's your question, is, mm -hmm. um, is my belief uh, that uh, in engaging the world in that way, I am um, I am keeping the presence mm. of Christ, um, the the vision of Christ alive, and helping it unfold in some small way. You know. And for you, I just I want to say this out loud. So for you, you know keeping the presence of Christ is very much part of your work, for example, um, with doing same-sex marriages long before it was sort of legally recognized. And, um, and, and that's part of your work as you see it for keeping the word of Christ. Yes, very definitely. Mm. Because, um, Again, you know, I can't find anything, any place that would indicate to me um, that Jesus' passion in life was to keep people from developing loving long-term relationships. I, I can't find it any place. <laughs> it seemed to me that it was the opposite of that, that he wanted mm -hmm. people um, to engage in loving relationships and to do that in a way that um, challenged them to, you know, lay down their lives for each other, to love so completely that they give everything for somebody else. Um, so to me, um, that that doesn't mandate marriage. I'm not saying right. that. It, right. just, it just opens the door for that expression or that reality since you know since uh, well i brought up marriage um i found this interview with you uh, from 2013 and the title of that interview is sort of uh, uh 32 years of same-sex weddings so that was eight years ago so i guess it's about 40 years now um and in in the interview uh you name you you recall the first gay marriage that you did. Um, how did you get to that moment and how did you decide to do that? And when was that, if you don't mind me asking? Good question. <laughs> uh, I think it was probably... The first gay marriage I did was probably the early 80s, but I, I don't know the exact okay. date. Uh, um, and in MCC, a uh, part of our uh, part of our rites or sacraments had always been what were called holy unions, um, because they weren't legally recognized, but they were recognized in the church. People got a certificate, all of that. So, in coming into MCC, that was part of the sacramental life, you know, um, just like communion or ordination or, you know, baptism, um, marriage, although it was called holy union. Union. Mm. Um, um, so I don't know. It never seemed 
it never seemed odd to me <laughs> that we would do that. Um, the the battle, of course, was social, you know, right. political, legal, um, and and uh, and thank God we won. You know, I think it's just remarkable that there's sort of you're sort of like, okay, this is not odd. The odd thing is that there would be backlash at all. And I just, I think that's, do you think that's unusual? That you just are sort of like, this is not unusual. Um, Well, my wife tells me I'm the odd one. I don't know. (laughs) Um, You know, I think that, again, not to be repetitive with you here, but. You can be repetitive, please. I think if we're going to say, you and I, Mm -hmm. I can presume that that we base our lives in the gospel of Jesus the Christ, then we have to answer all of these questions, you know, gay marriage, adoption, you know, Mm -hmm. immigration, whatever it is. We have to answer those questions on the basis of our understanding of the teachings of Jesus the Christ. And my understanding is um, I give you one commandment that you love people the way I've loved you, the way you've been loved by God. And to me, that seeking to practice that then opens up a very wide corridor of, um, of supporting and caring for people and, and, um, blessing their lives and uh, helping them live the mm-hmm. fullest, most fulfilling life they can. So that that's why I say it just, it just seems normal and makes sense, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I, I love that. Um, today I was sort of looking up, um, you know, I've, I've, heard of MCC a lot. I, I of course went to union. Um, but today I actually looked up some of the vocabulary in sort of the mission. Uh, and in one article about MCC, it says the Metropolitan Community Church was founded to minister to the LGBT community whose members were not welcome in most churches. Um, the New York congregation held its first service in 1972. Um, can you talk a little bit about the inception of this church? Because I don't think yeah. I knew that it was so specific in that found foundation of it. So um, the first worship service for MCC New York was um, held at Holy Apostles in their sanctuary on Epiphany Sunday, January 6, 1972. And um, Reverend Troy Perry was there. And the man who would become our founding pastor, Reverend Howard Wells, was there. And interestingly for you, perhaps, Howard was the first openly queer student at Union and helped found the first openly queer student union. Mm -hmm. Union. Um, This was back in the what we call the old days. So, you know, um, it was Troy. And people who heard about Troy and said, I want to help you do this. So um, Howard actually went to seminary and got a Master of Divinity. But many people were not that. Many people would come up to Troy and say, I've been called to start an MCC in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And they'd kneel at his feet and he'd lay hands on them and give them $5 in a Bible, you know? And, and that in a way happened to Howard because he said to Troy, he had been called to found a church in New York and, and Troy did lay hands on him and gave him $5 in a Bible and a note. Now this is long before your time. So you'll have to imagine this, but a note that said, <laughs> when you get to the city, call this number, a man mm. will answer, he will help you. No names, no nothing. Oh my gosh. People, you know, you could you could be arrested, you could be raided, you could be in a lot of trouble. 
That man was Mac McLean. He was in publishing in New York City and he did help uh, Howard. He became a founding member and he bankrolled a lot of a lot of the early life of the church and uh, and and that's how we got our start. That entire picture that you just painted is uh, truly something out of our current time. Um, how, so, you know, of course I, I read up about this. So that was about, um, well, that was almost 50 years ago now. I, um, and this was at a time, I mean, I, I can only imagine, you know, during, the AIDS crisis, the amount of sort of social pushback um, this must have had. How, how did this grow into the institution that it is now? And how do you see your role as senior pastor of this church to be in context of, you know, now we're in 2021, and one could argue that things have improved, but there's also this sort of very real backlash against trans and queer people, both in sort of a legal system, but also in political rhetoric. How do you see your work now um, sort of as an openly queer, gender non-conforming pastor of this church that has this historic mission uh, that's sort of rooted for queer people, essentially. Well, if, if we can back up just a little, I think it's important uh, that we not skip over parts of our history like the AIDS crisis in the United States and and what that was like. I mean, mm -hmm. we lost 400 people from that we know of from this church alone. The denomination lost 20,000 people that we can get their names for. I mean, it was a mm. devastating time in history. And you had, you know, cardinals showing up at the bedside of gay men dying of AIDS, telling them they were a disgrace to their parents, they ought to repent or they were going to go to hell. I mean, lots of terrible things happening. Families who abandoned their children showing up at their deaths and taking the apartments away from the person's partner so that that person was then living with AIDS and homeless. I mean, mm. it was just a horrendous time in history. And so, you know, I, I try to get people to remember that because I think uh, we are a community founded in resistance. You know what I'm Absolutely. saying? Absolutely, yeah. And I think that's not dissimilar from uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know what I mean? Like they were communities found resistance, resistance. You know, mm -hmm. and and the reason those stories don't neatly parallel each other is because of whatever the circumstance was mm -hmm. in their community, whatever they were most battling. So, you know, what we were most battling for a while was HIV and AIDS. Mm -hmm. And it, it really uh, shaped us. And, um, you know, other churches derogatorily called us the church with AIDS. Well, we picked that up as, as a positive appellation, the church with AIDS, you know? Yeah, we got this, you know? Um, I... I I also want to stay here a bit longer because I think, I mean, I, I was really small towards what people would name the end of it, which yeah. we can sort of, you know, yeah. um, um, and, and I was raised, uh, you know, as a millennial uh, with a really deep fear of, uh, the virus, like all our sort of the villains and the movies and sort of the, the, the worst thing that could happen and people sort of like deep, dark secrets in a movie were sort of, you know, HIV and AIDS was sort of this big thing. Um, and I remember my parents alongside a lot of other questionable things, you know, there was this fear around, you know, don't get AIDS. Um, 
And then as I grew up, uh, and I started coming into my queer identity, I do remember there being an overlap of fear there um, and not fully understanding if they were separate at all um, because I was young. Um, and I, my question for you is, you know, at that time, it seems like the people that I know and love that were queer and, and survived that time, you know, that was something that shaped their identity and activism. And that is sort of, a, you know, a period of time that was both traumatic, but just moved people in this way. How did that impact what happened after or what came after or, um, you know, and did that impact your theology at all uh, or your your work in faith spaces? Um, well, I think, yeah, the short answer is yes, of course. Mm -hmm. You know, um, in the early days, you know, and I know this isn't part of your life experience, but doctors weren't seeing these guys. It was mostly men, not all men. They weren't seeing them. Dentists wouldn't see them. People wouldn't help them. So the church office became... Uh, kind of like one-stop shopping in the sense of people came there, they roll up their pant legs. I look at their legs and they have Carposi sarcoma, you know, mm -hmm. what can I do about this? Nothing. So I put on my plastic gloves, get a bin, wash their legs just to suit, you know, someone touching them was like the world to them. Look in their mouths tell them, yes, you have thrush, you know, give them my best guess about what might give them some relief. You know, I mean, there just was nothing uh, but what I would call human compassion. That's all hmm. you can give them and, you know, hug them and hold them because, you know, the myth was that you could get it by touching. Right or you could get it by eating after them. And we continued to share a um, you know, common cup and, and tincture. Mm -hmm. Communion, yeah. And touching and laying on of hands. I mean, that ritual for us has uh, a lot of significance because it, it, uh, it was a very strong message in a day and age uh, when we were leprous, you know what I mean? Indeed. Untouchables. Um, so I think, again, you know, not to be too repetitive, but it, we are building out of a, we're building in a context of resistance, but also like something positive, like who can we be uh, for mm. the world and what's our, what's the message we're giving the world, you know? So first they called us the gay church, then they called us the church with AIDS. What emerged eventually was they started calling us the human rights church, <laughs> you know? And, and that's that. sort of the progression of our life at this point, you know, I don't know where that will end up exactly. But. Um, I, I have this question for you. I wrote this question because for someone like you, I'm really, I want to know in your dream of dreams, seeing what you have seen, you know, knowing, knowing some of the gaps in people's theology in practice theology or you know how hard some of this work is I'm really curious where do you want us to go where where do you see this work going what yeah we I don't want to be too specific I sort of want to know well, I want, uh, for one thing, I really desperately in my lifetime, whether that's ends tonight or gets <laughs> four days added, to reclaim uh, Christianity and the, the, the name of Christianity and mm -hmm. what it's about. Mm -hmm. um, and to really um, 
um, not to be famous or that kind of thing, but to get somebody who has the potential to get it out there to pay attention to, to what people like you and I are saying and doing and to publicize that as, okay, this is the real face. This is the real deal, you know? Um, so that that is important to me. And um, I also think, you know, people say things like, oh, you know, there'll come a day and age when you won't need MCC because queer people will be accepted. Well, that's a very limited understanding of what the word queer is in my, in my definition of it, you know, um, and a very limited understanding of the gospel again, because, you know, the thing about Jesus is widening the circle, right? Wider and wider and wider, going to the margins, you know, that kind of thing. And so that in my opinion, even if I lived to be 200 years old, I probably would not exhaust. Right. The margins. The margins, you know, mm-hmm. of who could, who there is yet to bring in closer and, and to help feel accepted and wanted and valued and cherished, you know. How, uh, so this is something that is deeply important to me as well, because I, I really sort of resent sometimes the fact that um, bigots get to claim God. And, uh, you know, I just, that annoys me to no end that that's the image that they have. And, uh, you know, in secular spaces, people think, oh, when you, if you believe in God, that that's who you must be in, you know, dismissing that or interrupting that uh, notion is important to me. But I guess my counter question that is related to something you said is, you know, in my life, certainly, there is a lot of evidence of damage that institutional churches have done, um, not just for queer people. Uh, I think there are issues of wealth hoarding and sexual violence that I am very passionate about. And I don't always know what to do with those two feelings. And I, I wonder what you do, do with those two feelings. The sort of feeling of anger that people have used the church's power to commit what can only be a crime, um, but also sort of the justice-oriented beauty of the gospel that exists. And how do we, how do, we do that? And how do, what do you feel about that? Well, first of all, I mean, I do believe there is righteous or justifiable anger or, you know, um, the, the, the issue is what we do with that, right? Where, how mm-hmm. we direct it, how we use that energy, because it is a source of energy for us, um, you know, so if you read the history of gay men's health crisis, for example, born out of a group of gay men's anger, really. Right. Mm-hmm. That nothing was being done. Um, fueling anger for anger's sake, I think, is not productive. Right. But directing it towards something that holds the possibility of saving lives or making changes is really, really important. So I, I think that's some of what I do with it. I think the other thing I do is I try to be, and as I get older, it gets a little easier, um, be mindful of the fact that, um, um, you know, that that thing there, but for the grace of God go I. Um, Mm -hmm. In the sense that, um, you know, sometimes the best I can do with people around me is just, God bless the jerk. I can't get a better prayer out than that. <laughs> that jerk next to me, you know. But doing that um, kind of puts us on at least a leveler playing field. And if I'm not willing to level the playing field, it's probably a lost expectation that they are going to 
you know what I'm mm. saying? Like, yeah, like that I have to practice what I preach and say I believe. And sometimes that's really hard. That's, mm. that's the short answer. It's really hard. And I, you know, I have days when I do better <laughs> when I do worse. Indeed. I have, la- I have two last questions. Um, my one before the last question is what is, what is a, a moment in scripture that you, that brings you some grounding as a queer person, but that you also sort of sh- shepherd people to when they're looking for scripture uh, that feels right and good? Well, the passage that has always been my, what should I say, my kind of where I ground myself is mm-hmm. Micah 6 8. What does God ask? Only this to act justly, to love tenderly, and to walk humbly with God. So that's it. That's, you know, mm. what is asked of us. And, um, you know, there's nothing there about who you slept with or in what position or, you know, any of those things. <clears throat> it's just very basic. And to me, it's very important mm. and relevant to me as a gender queer mm-hmm. uh, because it's very clear as a human being, this is what's asked of you. Indeed. This, this has been a delight. Thank you so much for your time, but also the decades of work that you've put into this that allowed me some room to have this podcast. I don't know. I think, I think my ability and space to do this is in part because of the work you've done. And I don't take that lightly. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you so much for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Union Theological Seminary in the city of New York. Special thanks go out to Ian Reese and Robin Reese, who are not related, and Megan Taylor for production and editing. Thank you for making this podcast happen at all. Thank you to Scott Sprunger and Katilao Mabindio for being my thought partners for this project and in life in general. Thank you so much to Sue Young Park for your guidance. The music was written and performed by Jen and Natalia Quadra. And as always, this work is for and dedicated to queer people everywhere, especially to those who cannot or never had the chance to come out safely as themselves. You have always been divinely made.